All right, Salt Company, what's good? Hey, hey, hey. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. I love this. You guys must have been matching with a lot of people. Is anybody else wearing a white sweater tonight? That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, cool. Nice. Hey, dude, actually, one of the best times that I was matching with somebody was at the Salt Company Conference. Who was at the Salt Company Conference earlier than January? That was so fun. Uh, but, dude, I was straight up matching with Judah. We were both wearing a gray crew neck and jeans, uh, like blue jeans and white shoes. It was kind of iconic. We took a picture. We should find that picture sometime. That was great. That's my little story of matching. I hope you were able to meet somebody new and feel just welcomed into this place. My name is Austin, and I have the joy of leading this ministry along with a great team, and it's just fun to be here, you know, just fun to be here. Uh, we've got new people coming like every week. If you're joining us for the first time, this is perfect. This is really perfect for you. We're just in week two of the semester. We're starting a little series tonight, uh, so you came at the right time. Fun fact, if you, needed a, if you need a Bible, we're going to open up the Bible in a second. If you need one, you can quick run out to the doors. We got blue ones. You can have it forever. Uh, but we're going to start a new series looking at the very beginning, the very beginning. And it made me start to think a little bit about the good old days. Have you heard that phrase tossed around a little bit? You know, the good old days. Maybe, maybe it was like your parents or grandparents, they saw like an old photo of themselves looking young and they'd go, ah, the good old days. You know, back when they were fit and young and excited about life, you know, and you just kind of make them feel bad. But then what you realize is when they're looking at the picture of themselves, they were in college. You ever, you ever thought about that? Guys, you... You're in the good old days. Am I right? You're young. You're probably in your prime. I was talking to somebody earlier that said they were playing the best basketball they've played their entire life. You know, prime of your life right now. You're in the good old days. But what you might be thinking of right now is, ah, they don't feel so great. Like I, even, even you have visions of years before that are kind of the good old days to you, Right? Here's what came to mind for me was the summer nights, right? Early 2000s. Some of you were like born in the early 2000s, but I'm only 25. So when I was in the early 2000s, yeah, that actually doesn't make sense. I, I was born in 98. So, okay, the <laughs> late 2000s or like the 2010s, I'm like playing basketball in the cul-de-sac, you know, just with the, it's like 9 p.m. and it's still light outside, you know? Oh, you gotta love that, the Minnesota nights. Or I also was thinking of like hopping on a bike and cruising down to SA, back when it was like Super America, not Speedway, and getting like, they had these buy one for $5, get the other one free, like huge bag of gummy worms. Anybody get those? My goodness, I would pound through some gummy worms. My mom told me, actually, these were the good old days, I'm telling you, the good old days. I would just be pounding gummy worms and Gatorade. And my mom legitimately had to have a conversation with me saying, honey, you're going to get diabetes if you keep eating this. She legitimately had to tell me that. It scared me half to death. And so I stopped eating them for a while. But if you ask anybody that knows me well, I'm still a sucker for gummy worms. But... Those were the good old days. Basketball till late, you know. No care in the world. There's something about 
years in the past, back when things felt a little bit more at ease, back when there weren't like the current stressors that you're feeling right now. There's something about looking into the past that makes you kind of think that that was, that was paradise. There's something really special about what was that I just can't seem to, to grasp anymore. What is it about nostalgia that makes it feel like what was in the past is what we're trying to get back to. Like we're trying to get that feeling back that we had 10 years ago before the homework was really an issue, before relationships got super dramatic, before your parents got divorced, before that diagnosis came in, before politics got incredibly divisive. Right, like we look back and we're like, man, I just want it to be restored back to how it was. What is it about nostalgia that makes us look back and think that that was paradise? Hypothesis for you. Maybe it's because there actually was a time when it was paradise. Maybe there actually was one day long ago when things actually were at peace. And maybe the course of humanity, like the flow of history, is actually trying to get back to a time when there is peace. Maybe this like feeling of nostalgia is, to, is ingrained in us so that we are supposed to realize that we were made for something great and actually want that for ourselves. Actually want peace. Actually want to be totally restored. Guys, there was paradise. The Bible describes it for us, gives us a beautiful picture about what life was like in the good old days. And it also unpacks a beautiful little story that spoils the ending of how we can actually get back to it. How we can get back to a peaceful time. How we can get back to a restored humanity. So that's what we're going to look at for the next couple weeks. Our origin story, if you will. What was paradise? How we'd lose it? And how do we get back? That's what we're looking at. That's why we're calling this series Paradise Lost. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Our origin story. If you've got a Bible, I would love if you would open it up with me. We'll have uh, the verses on the screen as well. But I would love for you to follow along. We're opening up to Genesis chapter 1. This is nice and easy because it's literally the first book in the Bible, you know? Nice and easy. But we're going to start right away at verse 1. I'm going to go pretty quickly through a bunch of verses, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to camp in a couple, okay? Genesis 1 to 3, here's what I want you to know on the front end. It's a poem. It was written by a guy named Moses, and the summary of what he's trying to get you to understand in the first couple chapters is why were humans created? How do we relate to God? And that's why the very beginning, the first couple words of Genesis, if you would look, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. He was there. And then humanity gets introduced to the story. But first, God starts creating the world by the word of his power. And he walks through, the author walks through basically five segments. He calls them days 
five segments of creation. And he first, day one, introduces light. God introduces light into the world. Day two, he separates the sky from the water. Day three, dry land appears. Day four, stars paint the sky. And day five, creatures in the sea and the sky are introduced. And day six, creatures on the land. And it's this whole buildup until what we're going to focus on today, which is verse, starting in verse 26. Up until this moment, there's been a pattern of God creating and saying it was good. God creating and saying it was good. And then we get to verse 26. And he does something unique that he hasn't done yet for everything else. And all of this is supposed to show us something special about humanity. Okay, why is humanity distinct? Let's look at verse 26 of Genesis 1 and see what it says. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, did you catch what it said right at the beginning in verse 26, the image of God. This is basically what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the night, the image of God. What does that mean that humanity was made in God's image? It is the thing that makes us distinct. It's the thing that no other created thing in that first pattern was given. When God created humanity, he said, let us make man in our image. Now, we don't need to super overthink this. I think this is pretty uh, fundamental to grasp because when you have an image of something, it's not the real thing, but it is supposed to communicate what that thing is all about. It's not the real thing, but it's a representation of the thing so that you can learn it. You can know what it's like. You can see its characteristics. It's not the real thing, but because that picture is there, because that image is there, you get to see clearly what the image is of. So we are not God, but we are supposed to display who God is. We are in our nature made like God, displaying some of his qualities. And to the rest of the world, we were made So that when people see us, when things look at us, they would be able to know who God is. We are a living, breathing representation of God to the world. That's big time. That is special. Nothing else on the planet is like that. It's just humans. We're special. Now, here's what this means practically is that we were made by God, but because we were made to represent him, to reflect who he is, we were made for God in the sense that we actually need him in order to function according to our design. Think of it this way. You are a mirror, not a flame. You see, a flame generates its own light. It generates heat. 
It's able to provide life and warmth. But a mirror reflects light. Without having a source to get the light from and reflect off, it can't create anything on its own. We are mirrors. We need to absorb from a source in order to then give off anything of value. We cannot generate it of ourselves. We were made to reflect who God is, but in order to do that, we need to actually be in relationship with God in order to do that. So we're not like a flame in the sense that we provide everything that we need. We are a mirror in the sense that something provides for us and therefore we are able to reflect that. We were made to bask in the glory, in the awesomeness, in the beauty of God. And then when we do that, the world would see how awesome he is. Now, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and uh, it made me think of the rhythm I've been in. I've been taking cold showers. This is crazy, guys. I'm not totally insane because I don't start with the cold shower, okay? I'm not crazy. I start with warm, you know, like hot, couple minutes while I'm like soaping up, and then at the end, I'm like two minutes hot water, two minutes like crazy cold, cranky cold. The dopamine hit is unreal, I'm saying. But I heard from a, this guy named Andrew Huberman. Anybody know who Andrew Huberman is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, big buff guy, incredibly smart. He's a doctor. And uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman, that's great. Uh, he is incredibly intelligent. He was telling me about this cold, cold shower thing. But it was also mixed with uh, his, his research and conclusions about the importance of sunlight. Okay, in order to feel most alert and most focused during your day, it's important that you would get up and immediately get your eyes filled with sunlight. So get outside and fill them with sunlight. And no matter how many, you know, you might be tempted to look at your phone right away or maybe some fluorescent bulbs. You can crank those babies up, but it will not be able to match the intensity of light, the right chemicals uh, that like go on in your body. I'm telling you, Huberman is way smarter than I am. I don't totally understand. But what I do know is he was saying some like chemicals spike in your body when you get sunlight versus fluorescent light. The iPhone just isn't enough. There's something special about getting outside and filling your eyes with sunlight that makes you feel alive, that makes you feel extra focused and alert and ready to go. Okay, it does not matter what you fill yourself with, what you are facing towards, what you absorb in your daily life. If you are not basking and filling yourself with the glory of God and how amazing he is, you're not going to feel truly alive. He is the source. There's something special about him that when we spend time with him, when we look at who he is, when we study his character, when we develop a relationship with him, that's what life's all about. That's a connection that we were made for. Just like sunlight in our eyes helps us be alert and ready for the day. When we would spend our early moments with God, 
man, we're ready to go. Ready to be who we were meant to be. Connected with him. Made by him and made for him. This is what we were designed to be. Mirrors. To reflect and represent who God is. But the only way to do that is if we're connected to him. Okay, that's what makes us distinct, right? Made in the image of God. But here's what we're going to see. That in the verses after, we have the potential to be incredibly destructive. Humans, because of our role given by God, have the potential to be destructive. Let's look at verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, meaning he blessed humanity. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our first task from God was to fill it. Why? Because we were meant to reflect God's image to the rest of the world. And so in order for God to fill the world with who he is, he would send us out. Fill the earth with us. So that every created thing, every corner of the world would know who God is. Because we would be his representatives. You see, God loves all of his creation, but he has a distinct love for humanity, right? God loves you more than he loves flowers. God loves you more than he loves pigs. God loves you more than he loves horses, more than he loves the prairies. By this logic, God loves the city more than he loves the prairie. Why? Because there's more image of God per capita in the city than in the prairie. Check this out. I did some math. The population of Iowa, 3.2 million people, 57 people per square mile. Population of Minnesota, 5.7 million, 72 people per square mile. That's a difference of 15 people per square mile. God loves Minnesota more than he loves Iowa. It's a fact. More image of God per capita. (laughs) God loves Iowans, sure, but he loves Iowa, or he loves Minnesota more. You know, just some math for you. Guys, humans, we're God's favorite thing that he's created. His most prized possession That's why he wanted to send us out and fill the earth with us. That we would cover every corner of the earth and that we would make him known. But we're going to go more into this next week. But what we see in the early chapters is that that humanity did not want to go about this mission the way that God designed designed us to. Sorry. You see, we didn't want to actually go out and fulfill this mission the way that God wanted us to. He wanted us to go out and make his glory known. But what we want to do is go out and make make a name for ourselves. We don't want to reflect his glory. We want to take credit. And so what we see is that we've removed God from the equation. We've become, instead of God's glory being the priority, our glory has become the priority. This has been true ever since the beginning. This is called sin. When we want to do things our way, when we don't want to take God's plan, when we want to get the credit, 
And it's what has made humanity extremely destructive because instead of going out and filling the world with God's glory and his image, we have chosen to go out into the world and spread this distrust, this disbelief of God so that we would get the glory instead of him. Instead of filling the earth with the belief that God is good and beautiful and trustworthy, we have spread the belief that God is not trustworthy, that we're the ones in control, that we're the ones who are the main characters. We began to fill the world with the belief that God doesn't actually have our best interest and he doesn't divine, define what's good, but I do. As this is what has ruined paradise. That humanity doesn't trust God and it dramatically changed our view of self and it changed our view of our neighbor. You see, the image of God, when believed fully, is a rock-solid foundation for the value of each of us. No matter how low we've gone, no matter how much we've messed up, and no matter how great our accomplishments, the image of God, belief, the fact that we were made in God's image, means there is rock-solid foundation for our value and worth, and nothing can take that away from us. But when we lose the reality that we were made in the image of God, when we want to remove him from the equation, it becomes totally up to us and our performance to determine our value. Or it becomes totally based on observable evidence in why we're here. What's our point if God's not here and if I wasn't sent here on purpose? There's a quote by a guy named Bertrand Russell that says, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end that they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the, account, the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. Summary, you're an accident. If there was no point in you being here, like, if it was all about just atoms falling together in the right place for you to be here, then there's actually no point. All of this is totally just an accident. There's no flow of history. There's no reason to live. There's no reason to do anything. That is a shaky foundation. But the reality that you were created with intention, with meticulous design... And purpose is rock-solid foundation for your value, no matter what you're up to. But you were made by God and you were made for God, therefore you have value. If God made you, then you are precious because God does not make junk. And that's true of you and it's also true of your neighbor because God doesn't make junk, even the person that you don't like. So not only does the image of God relentlessly advocate for your value, it also relentlessly advocates for the value of the person next to you. 
Every person that has ever lived, no matter how long or how well, were made by God and they matter to him. This is like the foundation of human rights. And it wasn't made by some policy or revolution or person. It was made in the heart of God before time even began. This book is ancient, guys. And from God's very heart at the beginning of time, he valued every person. God made you, God made your neighbor. But what we see and what makes humanity incredibly dangerous is that we don't believe fully in the image of God. It's been broken inside of us. We've started to devalue ourselves. We started to evaluate ourselves based on our performance, not on how much God thinks we're valuable. And we start to devalue the preciousness of other people. We begin trampling on them because of what they've done or where they've been. But the image of God is a flat plane. What would Salt Company look like? What would the University of Minnesota look like? What would Bethel University look like? What would the city of Minneapolis look like? What would the United States look like? What would the globe look like if we all actually did believe in the image of God, that all people were made in God's image. Two things would happen. We would have a burden for those who are getting trampled on, for those that are mistreated, those that are abused, those that are put down, those that are marginalized or murdered or mistreated. We would have a burden for them and we would want to lift them up and remind them that they have rock solid worth and value in God. The second thing is that we would have compassion for the people on the other side, the one who have done the trampling, the ones that have done the trampling, that have put other people down, that have murdered or marginalized or mistreated. We would be able to look at them with compassion because they too have value. They too were made in the image of God. We wouldn't need to make them feel like garbage, but just like God did for us, we would be able to give them grace and give them an opportunity to be welcomed back. That's a community that I want to be a part of. One where nobody thinks that they're better than the next person. One where platform doesn't mean that one person is more important than another, but all of us are totally bought in for the sake of reflecting God as the hero. And all of us with him. Humanity has become distorted in our image of God, and therefore we've become dangerous, filling the earth with death instead of life. Instead of God's glory, we've been trying to take credit for it ourselves, and it's left us basically with a mess. Because if we look at this, the whole course of history, basically what has happened is none of us have accurately represented who God truly is to the world. For thousands and thousands of years, none of us have actually lived up to perfectly reflecting God's glory because we've been, we've been reflecting different things. We've been seeking our significance not in him, but in our careers, in our schooling, in our 
personal accomplishments, in our likability. And therefore, we have not been accurately representing who God is. If we have been mirrors meant to reflect the glory of God and show the world his beauty, then the problem isn't just that we've pointed our mirrors in the wrong direction, but they are completely shattered and in need of being reconstructed. Not a single person has accurately represented God to the world. We don't know how to enjoy him well enough, and we don't know how to treat other people well to honor his creation. We are insecure. We know that something is off. We know that this is a little bit out of whack, and we've filled the earth with death instead of life. We've made a mess of this place and failed our first mission to fill the earth with God's image. So what is God going to do about this failure? What is God going to do? Let's look at this letter in Colossians. This was written after Jesus came, and this is, is talking about Jesus and what he was sent to do. This is what God did. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 16 and 19 through 20 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him and for him. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What would God do with the failure of representing him well to the world? All of us fallen short of accurately showing who God is, what would he do? He would send his only son to finally be what we could not be for the rest of the world. To finally be what we could not be. A perfect representation of him. It says in that little excerpt that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Jesus perfectly reflected the glory of God. He was pure and righteous and sinless and worthy of praise. He was everything that we failed to be. He's the only one in whom the image of God was not broken. And instead of taking that for his own advantage, he decided to lay it down so that you and I, the failures, would be able to be restored again. You see, Jesus on the cross was doing a great substitution. He was saying, my life for yours. Though I did this perfectly, I want to actually give you that great record. I want to transfer to you what I will achieve. So just like when the Timberwolves win the NBA Finals this year, and I'm wearing my Anthony Edwards jersey, I will be able to say, we won. What Jesus achieved on the cross he won and wants to transfer that victory to you so that you can put on the jersey and say, I won. 
I won with Jesus. He was broken so that you could be restored. He was cursed so that you could be healed. He was destroyed by sin so that you could be free from it. He was then raised from the dead so that you could be given new life. And by doing this, Jesus transferred to you wholeness, that you could be made into his image, that you could be made whole again. Jesus didn't come just to punch you a ticket to heaven, but then leave you feeling incomplete. Jesus came to restore you into the image of God, that you would be able to be fully confident that you've got value. You would be able to be completely secure in who God has made you to be. Jesus came to completely restore your identity in part now and in full one day. And so we see that Jesus returns to us everything that was lost from the good old days, a rock solid foundation in who we are, friendship with God and friendship with other people. This is what Jesus came to do, to return us to paradise. Let's thank him for this reality. Father, thanks for giving us a picture of what paradise was. It was life with you. Totally connected to who you are. God, we've made a mess by choosing not to reflect you, to not enjoy you, to not trust you. And in doing so, instead of spreading your glory to the rest of the world, we've spread sin and death. And because of that, God, we know that we are not deserving to have a relationship with you. We know that what that really earns is being cut off from you. But God, thank you so much for sending Jesus so that we don't need to be cut off, but instead he was in our place. God, thank you for sending him to be everything that we couldn't be, the perfect image of God. So right now, God, we just proclaim that Jesus is worthy to be trusted, worthy to be followed, and we accept the substitution. God, I pray for the person in the room that has put their trust in you, that you would just remind them of their value, remind them of what Christ has achieved for them. And for the person in the room that doesn't quite trust you yet and is relying on themselves, God, I pray that you would soften their heart, help them see that what Jesus accomplished is what they could never. Father, I pray that you would be glorified, that you'd be lifted up in praise and song, and that you would restore to us everything that you have achieved for us in Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen.